Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast and podcast. A little bit later on this hour, I will be joined by Iron County Commissioner Paul Cousins. We'll be talking a little bit about the huge event that took place down in Cedar City last Saturday. Finally, Colin Ray came and performed his concert. Uh, I I did not attend. I was not uh, able to go. Frankly, I was tired of traveling from the whole week of of, uh, lots and lots of, of travel, but it was a smashing success. And uh, we'll talk to uh, one of the key people behind the scenes for making it happen. One of the few elected leaders who didn't feel the need to virtue signal and fall in lockstep with, you know, whatever, you know, various health department people were saying about how it's so dangerous to get these people together for for the purpose of, I don't know, affirming their freedoms. Yeah, for some reason, it's the deafening silence about all the different uh, protests that are going on. And by the way, my understanding is, uh, contact tracers, at least in New York, that have been sent out to to trace, you know, well, who has had contact with whom when it comes to those who have tested positive for coronavirus have been instructed, do not ask them if they've been at a protest. Interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say there's a big grand conspiracy here, but it's it's getting harder to pretend that someone isn't trying to. How can I put this? shift things a little in their favor. Huh? Know, what I mean? know what I mean? Wink, wink. Huh? They're just trying to massage the facts, you know, to make sure that we understand. It's very dangerous for you to get together and go to church or to celebrate freedom. But if you want to go burn cop cars and you want to break some windows and, you know, protest and chant, by all means, that is pronounced a, a fine activity from which you are at no risk. I don't know. It just seems kind of selective. Well, the Supreme Court disappointed on a couple of fronts today. And yet, uh, I got to tell you, I don't put a lot of faith in the Supreme Court. I think that uh, the Supreme Court long ago, like back in 1802, overstepped its bounds. And it's just been kind of a natural progression since then, as it's become the enabler of the state and everything that the state wants to do. It's very, uh, I think the legal term is positivist. In its approach. Whereas uh, this was explained to me once, I'll try to make sense of it. Your rights should be negative in the sense that they prohibit the state from interfering with the exercise of how you choose to live your life and pursue happiness. Positivist laws put an obligation on you. They actually increase your obligations to the state. And we saw that in spades today. First and foremost, uh, cases involving the Second Amendment... Apparently, the Supreme Court doesn't want to touch that. I wonder why, especially since so many guns and so much ammo has been sold in the last few months, particularly in the last few weeks, as the awful truth has dawned on people that when you need the government to protect you, it's not going to be there. You're going to be on your own. That's not to say that, therefore, everybody who works for government is a terrible person. That's just acknowledging the fact that it can't be there. Even in the best of circumstances, it'll do its best, but mostly it's going to show up, collect the remains, you know, clean up the crime scene, take notes, contact the next of kin. But it cannot prevent harm from happening to you. 
And if you're serious about protecting what is near and dear to you, that responsibility primarily will fall on your shoulders. And then we have the matter of the the case of, uh, I, I don't know what, what the decision was or what the case was that went before them, but uh, apparently a person cannot be dismissed from a job based on LGBT status. Going to be surprising how many people come out as gay, you know, when, when their job is on the line, right? Well, the only reason this is happening, of course, is because of this. Now, I want you to understand, when I advocate for the idea that a business owner should have the right to terminate an employee or to hire an employee based on whatever criteria they want. I'm not suggesting that they should always do it based on some kind of racial prejudice or, you know, gender prejudice or anything like that. I'm just suggesting that it's it's their private property and the forced association that comes with solutions like title what is it title 2 public accommodations and title 7 Employment from the 1964 Civil Rights Act. These are blatantly unconstitutional things. And it's not because, you know, it's not because it's it's good for people to get along and, and not do uh, mean things to one another. It's because government really has no proper role in enforcing those attitudes. Now, by the way, you can disagree with me. I would encourage you to 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. I've been following a writer on Facebook. His name is Tom Cranawitter. He's out of Colorado. Dang, this guy makes a lot of sense. He says, I don't know if anybody else is telling the truth about this matter, so I will. And he starts right out by saying, look, these two titles, Title II and Title VII of the the 1964 Civil Rights Act, are blatantly unconstitutional. But beyond that, he says they're also unwise and unjust. And here's his thinking. He says, every business is a form of private property. The United States Constitution grants to Congress no power to command with whom private property owners must trade, with which the public accommodations section of Title II does. So, yeah, it may say it in writing. These are some politicians' words on paper. It does not mean that it's within the proper scope of government. If you can at least accept that, well, there may have been times when our government may have exceeded its... uh, its authorized powers, this would be one of them. He says, nor does the Constitution grant to Congress any power to command to whom a private property owner must offer a job or under what conditions a property owner can terminate an employment agreement, which the employment section of Title VII does. I mean, if they're going to go to this length, why don't they just go ahead and make it the law that you can't quit your job if you don't like your boss? It's the same principle. Is that really something government should be stepping in and enforcing? Why should there be government force brought into a situation where it's supposed to be a consensual relationship between employer and employee? If it's not working for one of them, that should be enough to say, no, this isn't going to work. And they should both be free to peacefully go their own way. So Tom Cranowitter says, you want more security in your job? Negotiate for a better contract that guarantees you cannot be fired for whatever reasons are important to you. Can't find any business owners who will agree to the kind of contract you want? Become more valuable to business owners or go start your own business and treat yourself exactly how you want to be treated. Don't like the terms of employment being offered by a business owner? Decline the offer. Bottom line, no one has a moral right 
to walk into someone else's private property, whether that property looks like a house, a restaurant, or a hotel, and engage in trades. Every property owner has the rightful freedom to choose who to invite, and every invited person has the rightful freedom to either accept or decline the invitation. Every property owner has the rightful freedom to offer an exchange to people of their own choosing, say a product or service in exchange for something of value. And every person to whom an exchange is offered has the rightful freedom to either accept, decline, or propose a counteroffer. Similarly, no one has a moral right to a job. Now, that's one that'll get a few heads uh, turning. What, really? Yeah, for the same reason. A job is in exchange. It's an agreed-upon amount of work in exchange for an agreed-upon amount of money. Now, if you own a business, that is your property. And he says, neither I nor anyone in government nor anyone else has a moral right to command what kind of job offers you make or to whom when you choose to end an employment agreement or for what reason. So think of it this way. He says, if a business owner doesn't have the freedom to fire an employee, then an employee has no freedom to quit. The job is an agreement between two parties. Either both parties have the freedom to end the agreement or neither parties do. So now you're in a position to see clearly how many mistakes the commentators at MSNBC, CNN, and the New York Times are making right now as they discuss the opinions handed down by the Supreme Court today, which he links below in his, in, uh, his article. And he says, you're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. See, I've heard it explained this way, too. When a person gets a receipt, a sales receipt, at the end of a transaction, that receipt is proof that a consensual exchange has taken place. And that's how it ought to be when it comes to employment. That's how it ought to be when it comes to doing business with one another. To me, it seems very thuggish to want to bring the government in and force this person. You, bake the cake. You, have to work here. You can't work here. Those are decisions that the property owner should make. If they do it poorly, the market will absolutely, well, either reward or punish them according to, uh, you know, what the market is willing to tolerate. Now, I don't know about you, but people who are real openly nasty, bigoted types don't seem to draw the biggest crowds for some reason. I don't know why that is. And it has nothing to do with government being there to punish them. The market does a fine job of just withholding its consent. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. We got a lot of great stuff to cover today, but before we go anywhere further, we are going to jump to the telephone where my friend Kevin is standing by. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Brian. Great to be with you on the radio. Um, you, do you remember Bo Grant's spike training? Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I do. Um, do you suppose that uh, it might be a good idea for people to watch those videos again in light of defunding the police and things like that? Do you think Bo Grant's was onto something? Um, I think he was onto a version of, you know, a possible solution. I'm not saying it's the only way, but uh, but I think everything that people can do to to come together with their neighbors 
you know, acquire the skills necessary to do, I don't know, light search and rescue, basic fire suppression, know how to respond and how to interact with first responders. You know, like if you search a, a house after an earthquake, would you know the marks to make on the front door that to people would know it's been searched? You know, there's there's a fatality inside or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but you can get that through cert training, which actually is, is done through the Department of Homeland Defense, but or, or through FEMA, I should say. But, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't fault anybody for trying to become a little more self-sufficient and assume more responsibility. Yeah, evidently, I think uh, some of those videos, because I looked at the spike training, it looks like some of those videos got leaked onto YouTube. So you might want to go check those out. Okay. And yeah, I, Bo, Bo, Greitz was, was, Bo Greitz was pretty gung-ho. I, I think I first heard him for the first time. Uh, probably back in 1992, I was driving across Wyoming, headed for Denver to go visit my in-laws, and, and I heard this guy talking on the radio, and, well, let's just say he made Rush Limbaugh seem kind of left-wing by comparison. Oh, yeah. And I was like, who is Absolutely. this guy? And then I met him later that year. He came to a radio station where I was working in Idaho, and actually a very nice guy, very gung-ho. You know, there some people have diplomacy. Bo was more like, come on, brethren, we got a war to fight. Let's Let's go. Yeah, um, I actually know someone who met Bo, and he was playing war games in front of uh, in this person's in uh, this person's friend's backyard. It would have been interesting to have been there. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Okay, thanks for your call. It actually, leads right into something that I was hoping to cover today in this hour, and that is: don't defund the police; make them part of the market. Now, have you noticed that right now we're kind of being put on the horns of a dilemma? Look, we either totally eliminate the police or we totally back the police. And so there, there goes that polarization. People are kind of lining up. Well, I support the police. Oh, yeah, well, I want to get rid of them. Well, what if there was some way that you could make police more accountable but not necessarily do away with them entirely? In other words, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Peter C. Earle, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a great example to illustrate how security matters can be handled by the private sector. He says, a few years back, I took my kids to an amusement park on Coney Island. Under the early afternoon July sun, already sticky with sweat, I turned upon hearing a shouting match near the ticket booths. After a brief but coarse exchange, he says, I'm glad my kids were on the ride and didn't hear some of the choicer expletives, two security guards walked over and stood silently nearby. They were a man and a woman, both middle-aged, armed only with radios. One held the radio poised at her lips, ready to request assistance if tensions escalated. Sir, it's time to leave, the other security guard said, and with unspoken consent, the agitated man turned and walked off almost wordlessly. Now, he says the brief furor was quickly forgotten, and he leaned over to a woman who was waiting for her kid to get on the same ride that his were on and asked what the situation was. He was trying to get in with expired coupons, she explained. And here Peter Earle says, look, expired coupons in a Brooklyn amusement park and an alleged $20 forgery or counterfeit in a Minneapolis corner market. A similar set of circumstances with two vastly different, in different outcomes. It shouldn't and needn't be so. But he says the difference is the security guards were private. The cops who kill for the same thing are part of public sector unions, enjoy qualified immunity, and are increasingly immune to even middling consequences for wrongdoing. 
Now, lest you think he's unsympathetic, Peter Earle says, look, there's no doubt that the police have a difficult job. Even in state communities, the requirement that one deal all day with disparate personalities, often seeing people at their worst, undoubtedly grinds away at a person. Nevertheless, an ever-growing list of documented misconduct, some of which was captured on film and culminated in the horrendous mistreatment and ultimate death of George Floyd, make it clear that something is fundamentally broken in the provision of law and order all over America. So he says the following means and perhaps combinations of them would undoubtedly serve to both increase the safety of interactions with law enforcement and improve policing effectiveness. All involve introducing more market forces, but none of these solutions are perfect and none will work overnight. The first thing he suggests is end qualified immunity. One approach that's been mentioned of late is ending the legal doctrine by which government officials are protected from personal liability owing to discretionary action unless clearly abrogating established federal law or constitutional rights. Without duplicating the efforts of other writers at the American Institute for Economic Research, Peter Earle says the observation that police officers are often seen to conduct themselves as if they are above the law is because by some measure they are. As USA Today reported less than two weeks ago, in 2020, the doctrine of qualified immunity had been extended to, among others, officers who stole $225,000, a cop who shot a 10-year-old while trying to shoot a non-threatening family dog, prison officials who locked an inmate in a sewage-flooded cell for days, SWAT team members who fired gas grenades into an innocent woman's empty home, medical board officials who rifled through a doctor's client files without a warrant, County officials who held a 14-year-old in pretrial solitary confinement for over a month. And police who picked up a mentally infirm man, drove him to the county line, and dropped him off at dusk along the highway, where he was later struck and killed by a motorist. So qualified immunity, Peter Earle says, is totally inconsistent with the underpinnings of a free society. And it provides far too much insulation from direct accountability for conduct. It should at the very least be severely bounded, if not completely done away with. He also calls for the idea of dismantling or constraining police unions. He says, among all the ironies overlooked in this terrible episode, few stand out more than that many of the same progressives or leftists who for decades have endorsed the unionization of all industries are the most perplexed by the seeming willingness of police officers to brutalize and kill citizens and the frequency with which there are slight or no consequences for doing so. Collective bargaining agreements have been regularly cited as not so much a hindrance as a barrier to greater law enforcement accountability. If unionization is to be permitted in the nominally public sector, a dubious proposition, if only for the increasing financial burdens conferred upon counties and states, it should be strictly limited to issues concerning compensation and benefits. That's a good idea. He also recommends mandate personal or joint indemnification insurance. Requiring officers to carry personal indemnification insurance or police departments to carry joint indemnity insurance is an important step towards improving law enforcement behaviors. The most basic direct implementation would involve the basic indemnity insurance premium, like on a monthly basis, being paid by the municipality, with increases due to infractions borne by the officer personally. Failure to make a payment or the officer becoming effectively uninsurable by the insurer like a driver with a history of serious accidents and moving violations, would be ground for discharge. He also talks about local police officer elections, broader, broader civil service career paths. And I like the idea, too, of markets and competition. 
because in many areas, police, government policing is a de facto monopoly with all the adverse effects that follow. Markets can and should be brought to bear on maintaining local order. The presence of private, for-profit security firms alongside municipal police departments would permit citizens to gauge their respective performance, allow community leaders to assess their cost-effectiveness, and give rise to positive competitive dynamics on the government police to treat citizens more like customers and reciprocally on private firms to replicate certain services extended by municipal cops. I'll post the article on the show notes. You can find them at lovingliberty.net. We'll be back right after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. So you may have heard there was quite the shindig down in the southern corner of the state. Yeah, Colin Ray came and performed the concert that uh, had been blunted by the efforts of, of some authorities uh, here in the northern part of the state. But uh, sounds like common sense reigns supreme. I have Iron County Commissioner Paul Cousins on the line with me. Paul, very good to catch up with you. I hear it was an unqualified success on Saturday night. Brian, it's great to be with you. I, I appreciate you reaching out and let me give you some details on our event. Uh, we, uh, you know, Mary and I uh, were really excited when they announced to have a Colin Ray concert in Kaysville. We planned to attend, and then that, you know, I, I think most people have seen the news on that. That was uh, that was struck down, and then <clears throat> they called an audible, and uh, we're going to have it at a 40-acre ranch outside of Tooele. And it had an amphitheater there and just a beautiful location for a, for a concert. And uh, last minute, the uh, county commissioners, a couple of them up there in Tooele, uh, got an injunction. Uh, they actually went to court on a Friday, I think it was Friday midday before the concert, and, uh, and, and killed the deal. And it was <clears throat> the thing that was frustrating, Brian, is the hypocrisy has really been nauseating. Because while they were shutting down this event in, in Tooele, there was a BMX event going on on county property with two or 3,000 spectators and participants. <clears throat> uh, Lagoon was open. There was a big softball tournament going. So it was almost like, you know, if you have a permit and it's on county property, COVID won't get you. But on private property, it would. <laughs> so it was a little bit <clears throat> distasteful. So... We were up in Salt Lake. We tra- traveled up a couple of weeks ago to go to that concert. My wife loves Colin Ray, and I do too. I, I'm not as uh, up on who sings what until I hear it, you know. But but she loves him. Wanted to go up, and so we went. And they canceled it. So we went to the rally. They had a, a little rally there in Tooele. Uh, uh, oh shoot! I think. Uh, at least 2,000 people showed up with an hour's notice. You and, and I bumped we, into each other there, actually. <laughs> yes, yes, it was wonderful. And we we went, and, and I called, you know, I, I got thinking, you know, why don't we have this in Iron County? And so I called my fellow commissioners down here and asked them, I said, how would you guys feel about, 
you know, extending an invite to this group, Utah Business Revival, to, you know, not that it's our event, but to, to invite them to come to Iron County. And, and both of them said, you bet, let's have a concert. So, you know, I, you were there. I, I announced that night that, they're, you know, Iron County's open for business, and you're welcome welcome to come. And so uh, last night, uh, or I'm sorry, Saturday night, we had just a wonderful time. You know, we, we've been, uh, you know, we, we had to do it quickly. But the next call I made up there in Tooele was to my good friend Frank Nichols, who owns the Iron Springs Resort, 10 miles west of Cedar City. Just a super guy. You know, he's a can-do attitude kind of guy. And and he said, you bet, Paul, let's let's, let's have a concert. And so we got home and, and started planning. And, and, you know, we wanted to keep it safe. We met with all the, the local law enforcement, fire, EMS, all of them. And... Uh, had event planners and and uh, they were all on board and our sheriff was very supportive <clears throat> and uh, so we you know we put up fencing along the high there's a highway that kind of goes through that area thankfully it wasn't too busy <clears throat> the night that we had the event but just to be extra cautious we put up fencing some snow fencing borrowed it from brian head in fact i just got back from brian head returning <laughs> that fencing but, but we put that up to try to keep, you know, the little kids safe from darting out on the highway and things. And, and so we went out of our way to to make it a safe event. And uh, anyway, we, you know, we had vendors and stuff start showing up about noon on Saturday. The, it was crazy. The day before wasn't bad, but uh, Saturday, boy, we had gale force winds. You know how Cedar City is, Brian. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. It was blowing, you know, it was, it was probably 30-mile-an-hour, 40-mile-an-hour gusts, and uh, they 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 couldn't really raise the stage. We we had a portable stage uh, company come down from Salt Lake, just did a terrific job. They were afraid to raise the stage up, the roof of it. Uh, they wanted to go 17 feet in the air, and they just couldn't do it with that wind. And so we had to wait <clears throat> until the last minute. In the end, it turned out to be just a beautiful evening. The, the, wind, the wind stopped, you know, about when the concert needed to start, and, and it was just, just a beautiful evening. So, I'm so happy that there were individuals like you, particularly in a position of, of you know, elected leadership, that, that were willing to, what can I say, buck the tide? Because it seems like, like so many of, of the, the people who were naysayers, whether it was in Kaysville or whether it was in Tooele County, um, just seemed to be you know, anticipating the very worst. Oh, you know, this is a terrible time. We can't do this. What was the benefit of, of holding this? I mean, um, obviously, people got a good, a good show out of it from Colin Ray. The guy knocked it out of the park. What kind of people did you see show up for this concert? Well, Brian, you know that they've canceled Shakespeare, our Shakespeare Festival. They've canceled Summer Games. They've canceled the July Jamboree, and these are the very events that define our community, right? And they're the, they're the very events that bring people to our community that puts the food on the tables of our uh, hospitality industry, our hotels, our restaurants, you know, gas stations, and, and we are hurting. And so that's another reason we did this is to help boost our economy, I uh, I was thrilled to see some of my friends that own hotels and restaurants and to see their hotels start filling up. But we had, Brian, we had people <clears throat> from St. George to Logan. Uh, I think there's a few Vegas people came, but we, there was a lady sitting behind me, her and her, her family, that dri- had driven from Logan to come to this event. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, of the four, I, I estimated about 4,000 people and what was neat is is most of those 4,000 people were families, you know, 
couples with, with small children, teenagers, and they were just. And Brian, it's 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 a healthy thing to see these kids get out and enjoy something, you know, after being cooped up and not being able to do much. So it was. But we had all all walks of life. We had some. I had a couple come that I'd met ten years ago that I knew well. They were in their late 80s that showed up. You know, they couldn't really even walk from the parking lot. We got a golf cart, and there was a lot of those kind of folks that came, and they weren't they weren't afraid. They were thrilled to be there to to experience the 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 feeling of liberty and freedom, and uh, and and that. You know, I sit on the board of health for five counties with Dr. Blodgett. I love the guy. He's he's. Uh, He's, he's, he's probably one of the only ones in the state of Utah in the health uh, realm that hasn't lit his hair on fire and say the sky's falling, right? <laughs> and so um, I've really appreciated him. You know, one thing that, uh, you know, one thing that I think we all realize is the worst thing that could happen is to go into the fall when flu season starts hitting us with COVID, uh, you know, with COVID still going with without some kind of herd immunity. And so... The fact that we we need to, you know, open up. We need to, we need to really quit worrying about how we're going to die and start living again, Brian. You know, I mean, we we do need to be careful. We need to be be sensitive of those that are affected by this. But um, you know what what has happened is is really I I just you know you know how it is, Brian, with the government. Whenever they try to fix something. It makes it worse. So, you know, and I'm I'm curious how the the Salt Lake Tribune refers to it. It was a protest. Well, a protest concert. So, uh, <laughs> how, how many how many uh, burned cop cars were you guys cleaning up after you know this this crowd was there? How, how many how many buildings were reduced to rubble? You know, you know, you know, you and I talked about this a little before before this segment and laughed. But um, in in all reality, Brian, <clears throat> when the crowds cleared out. I was worried about getting that many people out of there late at night on a, you know, we had some portable construction lights were really bright, which helped a lot, but I was worried about safety. I was worried about things. The people are smart. They, they left, they got out of there. It was orderly, not a single incident, but you know, what was amazing is we went around thinking we were going to have to pick up a lot of trash. I could not find a single piece of trash in that whole area. It was amazing. And I think the people, I think that there, there were, I think that there was trash, the people that, that were leaving picked it up, you know, and uh, just some of the most respectful crowds <clears throat> I've ever seen. And that's the caliber of people you find that come to these is they're respectful, they're happy, they're gracious, and uh, and just, you know, it would just, I, I really can't experience, I express the spirit we felt there. Um, I, I stopped and talked to Colin Ray right after the show, and I just thanked him. I said, Colin, you know, this, this really... Uh, boosted our spirits tonight. He was so gracious and happy to be there and be a part of this. You know, it's a, supposedly this is the first concert in the United States that's happened, and he was just really gracious to be a part of that. Well, Paul, I sure appreciate you being my guest. Thanks for thanks for your leadership too. Um, this isn't the first time you've been the guy who's been willing to stand up and say, "Hey, is there a better way to do this?" So uh, I again, I applaud you for for your leadership and good to talk with you, my friend. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate your friendship. You All have right. a great day. That was Iron County Commissioner Paul Cousins. And uh, aren't you, am I the only one? Surely there, there are people out there who are actually glad to hear that it went off beautifully. Nobody was harmed. People had a good time. They celebrated their freedom. 
That's what I was thinking. Then I made the mistake of reading the Salt Lake Tribune article. I thought, you know, out of curiosity, wonder what the comments will say. Holy cow. Do you talk about a giant suck on a sour lemon? Whoa, there are some unhappy people. Never could figure out why they're that unhappy. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. All right, you're going to think I've lost my marbles. Maybe you'll think I'm playing devil's advocate. Maybe you will think I sold out. But I came across an article. This was from the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's thought-provoking enough that even though I am not inclined to wear a mask when I'm in public, this is a well-written article, and it, was, it caused me to think, and I thought, I, re- I want to share this. So you don't have to necessarily agree. I'm not sure I necessarily agree, but it's still some really great food for thought. The article is written by Arthur Diamond. The title, Voluntarily Wearing Masks Can Save Lives and Open the Economy Faster. Now, he's approaching this from the standpoint of not because, you know, some some authority tells you wear a mask, but with the understanding that consumers are the ones who will ultimately reopen the economy. He says masks are worn or not worn for what they do and for what they symbolize. Passionate arguments, even physical fights have erupted between those who want the economy to open faster and those who want the lockdown to last longer. The eruptions start when one person, usually a lockdowner, is wearing a mask and the other, usually an opener, is not. So wearing a mask has come to symbolize support for lockdowns and not wearing a mask has come to symbolize support for opening. In the future, the virus may evolve or our knowledge of it may grow and we may seek new ways to adapt and fight it. But Arthur Diamond says, based on what we now know, the openers should not stigmatize those who wear masks. By stigmatizing, they undermine their own health and the health of others, thereby increasing the cost of opening and risking a backlash that could make lockdowns even longer and harsher. Now, he says, those who seek a flourishing economy should praise, not stigmatize those who wear masks. A flourishing economy depends on governments easing mandatory lockdowns. It also depends on consumers returning to a marketplace where they feel safe and respected. One way to protect and thereby respect the at-risk and risk-averse is to wear a mask. Now, he says lockdowns will ease more quickly. Consumers will return to reopened marketplaces more quickly if masks change from symbols of lockdowns to symbols of openness. So he talks here about mask effectiveness. Starting with several Asian companies or countries, rather, including Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan and Japan, they have had less COVID-19 than might be expected based on their demographics, density and closeness to China. Now, he says other factors may matter, but the widespread use of masks in those countries surely helped. A Yale white paper found that when the timing and extent of a lockdown was controlled for for countries with pro-mask norms, they had deaths growing at 11 percent per day compared with 21% in countries with no pro-mask norms. Now, masks are classified as either N95, surgical, or cloth. Research suggests that the efficacy of N95 masks is greater than surgical masks, and the efficacy of surgical masks is greater than cloth masks. Medical researchers contrast the efficacy of a device under ideal research conditions, which the effectiveness of the device with the effectiveness of the device under actual clinical conditions. 
So despite superior efficacy, Arthur Diamond says some studies suggest that the effectiveness of N95 masks is roughly equal to the effectiveness of surgical masks. Now, this puzzling finding may be in part due to the greater difficulty in breathing with an N95 mask. Those tasked with wearing a surgical mask may be more likely to comply than those tasked with wearing an N95 mask. But although in the COVID-19 pandemic, N95 masks have been prized as the gold standard, surgical masks or even cloth masks can do much good. Now, he says a recent study collected exhaled breath samples from those with non-COVID-19 viral respiratory infections when wearing a mask and when not wearing a surgical mask. They found virus particles in 30 to 40 percent of the samples from those not wearing a surgical mask. They found no virus particles in the samples from outside the masks of those wearing a surgical mask. A 2010 study found that even simple cloth masks block the penetration of between 10% and 30% of small viral particles. A team of economists, MDs, and other scholars, all based at Yale, estimate that a mask blocks 10% of viral particles, produces a benefit of between $3,000 and $6,000 per person who regularly wears a mask. He also says the estimated benefit would be larger if a mask blocks more than 10% of viral particles, but it would be smaller if it was based on a less dire epidemiological model than that of the Imperial College of London's Neil Ferguson. Interesting stuff. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Yes, I didn't hear the little squeak. Hey, let me tell you something about these masks, you know. Okay. Okay, last October, November, you know, I've got a, three or four cats, and I guess it was the dander. It was starting to really irritate my eyes and sinuses and stuff. So I went and got one of those M3, uh, 3M masks. I don't know if it's an M95, but but it was so damn tight I couldn't breathe through it. So I went and bought a air purifier, a couple of those, and that did the trick. But the thing is, I've got bad kidneys. And they hurt all the time. When I tried them masks on, they hurt twice to three times as bad because I wasn't getting any oxygen to to my kidneys or internal organs. These people that breathe these damn put these damn masks on, they're breathing carbon dioxide. Plus, you're going to end up with a lot of sore throats and sinusitis, you know, sinus trouble and and stuff in your lungs because you can't. When you breathe out, you're expelling a lot of that crap. But if you got a mask on, you're keeping it, and then you breathe it right back in. It's stupid. You know, but, he uh, he, do, he does address, uh, I guess, the the viral load and how wearing a mask can can you know contribute to a higher viral load. You know, I I think one of the reasons I push back on it right now is just because it has kind of become a badge of compliance, and I I don't I don't want to show myself to. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to bend the knee to to the fear out there. So my my resistance is less based on you know. I don't think it has any health benefit. It might for some people, but I just I don't want to be. I don't want to sit there and virtue signal, which is kind of well, how I perceived point, it. The point is, is you're trying to get oxygenated blood, and you end up with hyper 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 uh, capnia, which is an excessive amount of carbon dioxide, and that's just as dangerous as carbon monoxide in your bloodstream. You can't, your blood gases are, you know, you don't have enough oxygen getting to your internal organs, and it damages them, including, you know, the brain, the heart, everything, just everything you go up. It's, uh, these, and they asked the doctor on TV once, uh, these masks make you breathe 
oh, no, that's just a myth. He's lying, <laughs> you know. My kidneys hurt twice to two to three times as bad. They're always hurting. So I said, the hell with this. I'm not going to wear this stupid mask. And that was back in October before this crap ever even happened. It's, I think it's just a big ploy to ruin people's health and get them to stay indoors. You well, know? I appreciate you weighing in on this. Thanks so much for the call. 801-331-8113. Again, I'm, I'm sharing this article only because I think it does provide some pretty good food for thought. I would say even evidence that uh, the, the mask could be beneficial for some. But the key here, the key word is it has to be voluntary. There's a balancing of costs, and that's something that we all have to kind of look at on our own. And in this case, Arthur Diamond says, for the economy to improve in the short run, we need practices like less public transportation, less open office designs, masks, and he says drugs like remdesivir and other promising candidates that will improve our odds of dodging infection or even mitigate the severity of infection. For the economy to flourish in the long run, we need drugs that cure or vaccines that protect. But in the meantime, he says government can help reducing by reducing regulations that block innovative new practices or the development of new drugs and vaccines. Individuals can help, too, by being alert to what we can do. Masks are not a magic bullet against COVID-19, but he maintains they can improve our odds. And for our own health, for the health of others, for a faster opening, and ultimately for freedom, each of us should voluntarily choose to wear a mask. It's an interesting slant, right? I mean, you know, look at it as a symbol of freedom. I have the freedom to be out and, you know, exercising commerce or doing whatever it is I'm doing because I'm wearing the mask. Now, tomorrow when I talk with Eric Peters on the show, Eric takes a little bit harder stance. And and I don't blame him because, like me, he's pretty fed up with a lot of the stuff that has been force-fed to us. Like we're a bunch of cows to be herded this way and that way and, you know, told what to do at every turn. I really don't care for the, you know, one-way arrows on the supermarket floor. I don't like, you know, the endless signs everywhere you go. Please wear a mask. Please make sure you're distancing yourselves. You know, the way that the cattle chute is set up now for the entrances and exits of even, you know, supermarkets and Walmart. Maybe there's some efficacy to it. I don't know. But more often than not, I just get the sense that someone is trying to remind us that we're supposed to be afraid at all times. And that's when we seem to be most susceptible to manipulation. And so far, that hasn't worked out so great for us. Check out the show notes at lovingliberty.net. This is Loving Liberty. Thanks for joining us.